0: The 72nd annual American Cinema Editors Eddie Awards will be presented on Saturday, during which film editors Lillian E. Benson and Richard Chu will receive Career Achievement Awards. These talented editors are our guests on behind the screen. Richard Chu has edited such iconic films as Milos Forman's One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, for which he earned a BAFTA award that he shared with Lindsay Klingman and Sheldon Kahn. Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation, for which he earned another BAFTA, which he shared with Walter Murch, and Star Wars, which delivered an Oscar to Chu, Marsha Lucas, and Paul Hirsch. His credits also include Risky Business, Going South, Singles, Real Genius, The Runaways, and Shanghai Noon. Lillian Benson was the first woman of color invited to join Ace 30 years ago and has been an active member serving on the board of directors for the past two decades. She was nominated for an Emmy for the PBS civil rights documentary series Eye on the Prize, and additional credits include Beyond the Steps, Alvin Alley American Dance Theater, All Our Sons, Fallen Heroes of 9-11, Maya Angelou and Still I Rise, and John Lewis Get in the Way. She has taught film editing at USC, Columbia College Hollywood, and the School of Visual Arts, and she's currently in her sixth season editing Chicago Med. Let's welcome Lillian Benson. Billy, and congratulations on your honor.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
0: I'm looking forward to this conversation. Um, why don't we begin with how you got into editing?
1: I didn't start out uh, looking to be an editor. Uh, I was always a, an art uh, aficionado and loved to draw as a kid and went to uh, a high school that specialized in art and then went to an art college. But it was at when I was in college that I discovered filmmaking because there was a class uh, in freshman year uh, where you had to do something about motion. And I ended up borrowing a friend's uh, eight millimeter camera and doing a little piece uh, and set it to music, you know, the usual picture, and uh, a music thing. But it was the thing that made me the happiest of anything that I had ever done. Um, and then so fast forward uh, three years later in senior year, I was working uh, in a photography class because there were no film classes at that particular school at that time. And I did a, a, a photography uh, project called First Hour of the Morning. And it was in that project that the, my professor said he asked me whether I was a film student. And I said, no, that I wasn't. And he said, Well, you should be because you have the best sense of sequence I've ever seen. And so that was planted. And of course, uh, I had to get a job when I graduated. So I uh, had a teacher, got a teacher's license, and I taught in the New York City public school system for um, two and a half years. And I realized that I was not going to be great. And because I'd had Some teachers who really inspired me and protected me and encouraged me, um, I decided I didn't want to waste a spot and take up space. And previously, I had met a a woman who was a documentary uh, editor named Pat Powell, and she um, encouraged me and and said if I ever wanted to leave teaching, um, she would help me. Now, I was naive enough to believe that she would, and fortunately, she did. Uh, So many times people say, well, call me or I'll, you know, I can do something for you. And they really don't mean it. But she was a person uh, who meant it and helped me get my first couple of jobs. And then I got started in editing. I wanted to be a, a cinematographer because I enjoyed photography so much, but I realized it was not uh, really a job in which I would have much success because the cameras were heavy. It was very, very, very male as an in, uh, as a discipline. And I didn't really think I had a shot. So I met an editor. She helped me. She could do it. She introduced me to some people. So I thought, oh, well, maybe editing is what I should do.
0: Well, you've done all sorts of projects from documentaries to narratives and um I'd like to talk about a couple of them. Why don't we start with the documentary Eye on the Prize? Would you tell us about that project and how you got into
1: it? Eyes on the Prize is a seminal uh, documentary civil rights series, and it was uh, 14 hours. The first Eyes on the Prize was done uh, Uh, in six episodes and the second set was eight and I worked on the second set of episodes. I had applied for the first, but I didn't get the job. And I was of course, crestfallen. And, um, but I got the second one. So it's all good. And, and there were four teams, uh, with, uh, two producers, uh, one assistant producer and, um, uh, an editor. And there were, Uh, staff archivists and staff um, writers. So that was the structure. It was was actually the biggest shop I'd ever worked in at the time. And it was my first PBS uh, documentary, hour-long documentary. The producer, Jackie Shearer, um, thought that the the producer, Jackie Shearer, believed I could do it uh, and she wanted to hire me. Other people felt as is so common in this industry, if you've never done it, you can't do it. So she had to lobby hard for me and I got the job and, um, and it, was, uh, it transformed me. I'm a beneficiary of the C- civil rights movement. My family is from the South. And so I had firsthand knowledge through their experience of all the Jim Crow laws and all the evil that existed in those times. And um, I grew up in New York City, uh, but I knew because we would go back and visit men and I'm old enough to have seen those signs, colored only, white only. So it was actually an opportunity to both explore the history further, but um, also give um, pay homage to people who had really struggled um, and fought so that I could have something better. So actually I could sit in a chair uh, as an editor and do something that most black women uh, did not do at the time. Uh, but Jackie was an extraordinary director and, um, and the two episodes we worked on, um, and she had a co- her co-director was Paul Steckler. Um, and the two episodes we worked on were um, Promised Land, which is the last year in the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. So it went from January of 67 through November of um, 68 after the election, we ended with the uh, election of Nixon. Um, And the second uh, episode was called Keys to the Kingdom and it was about the um, legal remedies to segregation. There were three segments in that episode. The first one was about Boston busing in 1974. The second was about the election of Maynard Jackson, uh, one of the first Black mayors in Atlanta. And the third was the Allen Bakke case, uh, which was a civil rights case that went to the Supreme Court about affirmative action in colleges uh, and uh, across the United States. Because Jackie was the daughter of a activist in Boston, she decided she wanted to tell the story of Boston busing from the perspective of the mothers, both black and white. And that was the one of the main reasons she wanted a female editor. And she felt that she hit the jackpot when she got an African-American female uh, editor who also had been bused. So I was bringing my personal experience to it, um, as well as the artistic sensibilities that develop over time. Uh, The more you cut, the more you find your voice. Uh, I probably should say, I was nominated for an Emmy for my work uh, on The King Show uh, and on Eyes on the Prize, uh, the second Eyes on the Prize. And also I came to the attention of George Grenville Uh, then president of ACE, when he was looking to recruit women for uh, the ACE membership. And I was invited um, to apply and did and got it. And
0: you became the first African American woman to be accepted into ACE. And since then, you've been incredibly active. Uh, You've been on the board for many years, a board officer. And also, I know you've been very active with the diversity committee.
1: There are two diversity committees. Um, There are two diversity committees that I am uh, co-chair of. One is ACE, um, and that is a mentorship, um, the official title is the ACE Diversity in Editing Mentorship Committee. And that is, uh, I co-chair that with Troy Takaki. And that is a more personal, smaller size, Venture, um, There are seven sets of uh, mentors and about um, four, four mentees per group. So it's very small and it's about uh, skill sets and attitude and staying the course and learning how to network and picking yourself up when you're down um, and all those good things that you need a sounding board for because um, all of us have been um, through something like that um, and it is open to everybody, uh, but the purpose is to um, provide resources for uh, underrepresented groups. Um, the other uh, diversity committee on, on which um, I am co-chair, I'm co-chair with Maisie Hoy, um, and Maisie, of course, is a rock star. And it's for the editor's guild, uh, the motion picture editor's guild. And that is designed to, again, help people uh, blossom, but also to allow the membership, to introduce the membership to people that might not look like them. Because, you know, you, you work with the same group you work with, you don't know about anybody outside. And again, that's also something anybody can apply to. Uh, to uh, be part of the committee. Uh, And it's also developing um, panels and events for the larger um, guild membership. So that's a much bigger thing. So it's, I guess, like a small, a more personal um, to a more uh, corporate because we're just, the purpose again, is to um, help people who have not had a voice have a voice. And of course, you
0: also have done a lot of narrative work, and most recently you've been working on Chicago Med. Tell us about that project
1: now I've been at um, Chicago Med for six seasons uh, and Chicago Med is a, a procedural drama uh, about a hospital, so there's a structure of you know how many patients uh, you know usually there's three patients sometimes four. Um, there's a big story, the A story, just like a, a novel or, uh, you know, any other kind of uh, a fictional piece. Uh, that's the big story. And then there's a backstory of the underlying continuing drama of the characters. And it's a lot of talking, a lot of words, uh, which is fun for me because I like words. And it's not a whole bunch of action and car, uh, you know, car chases and stuff. Um, I did have a car crash at the beginning of this episode I'm working on now. So it was using a different part of my head, but you know, people are people and you, um, I try to put myself in their shoes in the scene. If I'm having some trouble, like who, who would I want to look at, you know, who, what would I want to see? Um, and because our executive producer Arthur Forney is a former editor he can really help you find that place to look if you're having trouble and um, and he's uh, remarkable in shortening things and hearing excess it's it's pretty fascinating and i i know like sometimes you'll say well why why are we looking there lillian it's like and then I say, uh, where 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 should I should we be looking? You know, give me the answer already. <laughs> don't <laughs> don't question me. Give me the answer, please. Um, so it's been a good uh, a good run, and I'm working with two other editors who are are very good, um, uh, David Siegel and Nick Beresford, and prior to that, uh, J.D. Bruxton was on uh, the team. He's wonderful. And um, so, I mean, it's, it's really, it's the truth of the medicine. It's the truth of the spirit of the people and the emotions of the people. It's not the literal truth the way it is in documentaries. When we know that Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated on April 4th, in the afternoon at the Lorraine Motel. That is not uh, open for interpretation. Uh, We know when certain laws were passed. We know when Maynard Jackson was elected uh, mayor in Atlanta. We know when the Bakke case came down from the, uh, the Supreme Court. These are all facts. So there's not wiggle room, but it's always about the emotion and the consequences, the stakes, the losses, the the wins, the victories, uh, the empty victories sometimes. So um, it, there's enough overlap, but it is very different. And you work, of course, on uh, episodic, not necessar- not on features, because I've never worked on a, a big, um, you know, Theatrical features, I've worked on indie features, but with an indie feature, you're with the person five, six months with a with a big documentary. You're there six months to a year with episodic. You're there four days with that director and two weeks with the producer, period. Next. And it's just a different, different, it's different.
0: You're now getting ready to accept American Cinema Editor's Career Achievement. Award. Huge honor. Would you reflect a little bit? What does that award mean to you?
1: The Career Achievement Award is not something that I ever thought I would get. Other people have said that to me when they were um, chosen. And of course, having been on the board for 20 years, there's been 20 sets of people that I voted on. And I did not um, ever think it would be my turn. So it's a great honor. And it means a lot because it's from a group of people who are extraordinarily talented. And I pay money to see their movies. So it's pretty special because of that. And the two people who sponsored me into American Cinema Editors, uh, the first was uh, it was John Carter and John so, Um, and they are the first two men of color to be asked to uh, join. Uh, John Stowe was first. Uh, John Carter was second. Leon Ortiz-Gill was third. I am fourth, but the first woman. So Mr. Carter told me about ACE, because, of course, I said, what does ACE mean, you know, uh, when I saw it, because I'd seen his, credit, his his stuff in the movies. And uh, John So worked on uh, Jacques, all the Jacques Cousteau uh, series. And so I would see John So comma ACE. And so I learned what it was before I was asked to apply. Uh, so I knew what it meant. and. Um, and so that kind of um, long ago feeling of it being a special honor and a special place hasn't really waned because I see the quality and the camaraderie of the people in the organization. And, um, and so it's, a, it, it's even... More important because I know what it's like from the inside out, not just from, you know, seeing it from afar. But I, I remember the first event I attended, and it was before I was a member. And it was the year Margaret Booth uh, received a Career Achievement Award. And, of course, Margaret Booth ran MGM. And Miss Booth had gotten an award from the Academy a a year or two before. And I think that's how I knew her name, but I was sitting in the big old ballroom and there was this incredible legend on the stage. And it was really very, um, it was invigorating and strengthening and um, encouraging. So if I can do that on that stage, you know, come March 5th, I'm a happy girl.
0: I look forward to seeing you there.
1: I haven't seen you in two years. (laughs) I know it's so, it's going to be strange, you know, and I I don't really want to um, ask people, are you coming? Are you coming? I don't want them to feel like, I don't want people to feel like they have to come, but it will make things great. And, you know, a friend of mine who is a music supervisor uh, said a long time ago to me, she said, you know, you just have to... Celebrate these things when they happen, Molly, because they don't happen that often. And and uh, and this was she was saying this to me to to give uh, to relay to a young man who had gotten a DGA award, and he, as a, a student uh, filmmaker, and um, he's a professor now, uh, you know, a film professor, and uh, he was one of my former assistants. Um, so he's not, you know, he always wanted to be a director; he never wanted to edit. But he was very good at editing. And that's sometimes what happens. So people, they want the bigger star. You know, they want the bigger or the perceived more important position. You know, somebody's got to edit your films. And a good editor can, you know, save you an awful lot. And the good ones know that. The good directors know that. And act accordingly. During this pandemic, I thought about the people that, took me from one place to another safely in my career or facilitated me, Uh, not unlike uh, Harriet Tubman, uh, following the North Star and helping people escape. Um, The first person was uh, Pat Powell, whom I mentioned, who helped me get into the business. The second person was Joe Staten, who helped me get into the union and also kind of shepherded me because I kind of, you know, I didn't really know very much at the time. And we, we continued to, a friendship for our entire lives. Um, the third person is Jackie Shearer, who lifted me out of corporate films and music videos and uh, product launch material uh, and got me to the PBS uh, stronghold. And that was a tough one to get into. John Else, who is a Bay Area uh, director, also multiple uh, Emmy winner and uh, documentarian. And um, he got me my second or third PBS show. But because he was on the West Coast, and his circle of people was totally different, Uh, he helped me get more established because he was a member of the Academy and he had been nominated for an Academy Award and all those things that matter to people. But he had as much faith in me as Jackie Shearer did. And uh, Debbie Allen would be probably the the last one because uh, she believed I could do drama when nobody else did. And I think some of it is people see the potential and they invest in it. And I didn't disappoint those people. Um, You know, not that one is ever perfect. Um, But those are the people that kind of like took me to the next level. Um, And of course, my agent got me uh, Chicago Med, but I couldn't have gotten my agent without all these people. But you, you know, you just need a couple people. Is there any other messages you'd like to share before we wrap? I think the most, for me, the most important thing is you have to be true to the self that you know at the time, because we learn about ourselves as we grow, but you can't be somebody else and you can't be something for somebody else just because they want it because you lose yourself and if you lose yourself you can't do the work and money is not everything money is great but money is not everything and some people chase chase the dollar and chase fame that's not me
0: congratulations on your very well-deserved honor thank you so much
1: for joining us thanks This episode is brought to you by CarMax. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because CarMax believes you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car they sell has CarMax certified quality so you can be sure. With upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive. CarMax. The way car buying should be. Start shopping now at
0: CarMax.com. Next, we're going to go to my conversation with Richard Chu. So, Richard, congratulations on your award.
2: Well, thank you very much, Carolyn, for having me on.
0: Thanks for being here. Let's start at the beginning. Richard, how did you get into film editing?
2: I got into film editing by having been a law student, of all things, and while in law school seeing a film called Nothing But a Man. And that picture, because it was really a a social comment in the guise of a love story made me realize that um, social context gives a story a meaning. And that's when I realized the power of film, depending on how you present the characters and what shape uh, you would make the film. So I started in documentary films as a cameraman. That was really the first way Uh, or the first job I could get. And uh, from being a documentary cameraman, I learned the power of editing by the arranging of images. And uh, that led me down that path because there were more opportunities available for me to sit and manipulate the images of film rather than going out on locations to shoot them. So. when I had the opportunity to uh, move to San Francisco and to work at American Zootrope, which was started by Francis Coppola, George Lucas, and John Cordy, I started in documentaries there first and then moved on to Features, which then led me to working with Walter Murch on The Conversation. And then that, of course, <laughs> led me to working with Milos Forman on Cuckoo's Nest and then with uh, George Lucas uh, on Star Wars. But, uh, starting in documentaries gave me my start.
0: Let's talk about some of your stories. One of your um, Oscar-nominated projects was One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, where you, I believe, were on location for some of that?
2: Yeah, you know, uh, being on location um, brings you uh, such new adventures uh, because you're in, uh, you know, uh, uh, different ground than you're used to. And uh, since Cuckoo's Nest was filmed at the Oregon State Hospital, which was still active uh, with patients that had different medical conditions. Um, The ground floor of the wing we were in um, was actually used for production offices and for uh, the set. And on the second floor, they were able to squeeze us into about three or four rooms where we were able to uh, set up our editing rooms. And what I immediately noticed when we moved in there to get our equipment in was that the doors to each of the rooms had dead boats, and the doorknob was on the outside, not on the inside of the door. So if you're in the room, there is no way that you can get out unless an attendant opened the door for you. So I thought, oh, that's kind of interesting. And then, of course, all the windows had uh, wire screens, but reinforced iron screens, metal screens. So you can't like open the window and jump out. We were only in the second floor, but um, I don't think I would try to jump out anyway. But, um, you know, we had editing machines at that time because we're editing on film and the machines were quite bulky. So. It took up most of the space of the room, so only one or two people could be in there anyway. But I found out subsequently, uh, after moving into our editing rooms, that the maximum security ward for women patients was above us. And yeah, I didn't think that there was anything unusual about that, but you know, after the first week or so, I began noticing that uh, there would be crashes sometimes you know, coming from above. And then after the crash, you would hear a bunch of footsteps uh, converge on the spot. So, you know, I was just kind of picturing the worst of uh, whatever that was going on up there. It was someone was having an episode and the staff would have to go and attend to it. But it did kind of um, kept me and my staff uh, you know, I had a couple of uh, assistant editors kept us on edge because we didn't know because we had to use the same stairways to go up and down, um, whether we run across uh, people that might have uh, an issue with us being there or with each other. So that really kind of kept us edgy.
0: So you and Lindsay and Sheldon all had your suites there?
2: No, no. Uh, I was the uh, original editor, the first editor, and I was there until April. Right. And Lindsay and Sheldon didn't join us until we returned to Berkeley, where we set up at Fantasy Films. And then about, I forget, maybe in May or June, Lindsay joined us first. And then because uh, United Artists had this hard date for us to finish, then I believe uh, Shelley Kahn joined us in somewhere midsummer uh i don't recall right now but uh it was after we were there in a dangerous uh, location
0: well when you were editing one flew over the cuckoo's nest you had a chance to meet jack nicholson and he subsequently invited you to edit his movie going south
2: working with jack was such an unusual experience because of course he's this blow-up international star so i was quite um flattered that he would ask me. But then on top of that, um, he asked me to go on location uh, with the picture. And we were filming in Durango, Mexico, or actually outside of town. And uh, in Durango was the uh, hacienda where Jack was living and also where uh, I had set up our editing machines. And one day uh, he asked me to come and visit him on the set. And at the end of that day, he invited Nestor Almendros, our uh, DP, and me to ride back with Jack in his RV. And um, it started to rain as it was an hour's drive from the set uh, back to Durango. And in the middle of the drive, it started to rain. And so Jack asked the uh, driver to stop. And he says, boys, you have to do this with me. So we were wondering, like, what's going on? You know, it's raining. And we stopped in the middle of this two-lane highway. And he opened the door, and he says, come on, boys. So he let us out outside, and he had us climb up the ladder to the roof of the RV. And uh, he laid down in the middle, and he had Nestor go on his left and me on his right. And then he locked our arms to hold us there. And he says, you guys want to hold on to the railing? So we grabbed on, and then he yells to his uh, driver, Cotton, you know, let's go. So uh, Cotton, the driver, <laughs> would start slowly going down the road faster and faster, and it's raining all this time. And then, of course, the faster he went, it seemed like the harder the rain fell on us. And then when he got up to, God knows, 30 miles an hour, Jack said, okay, sit up. And we we're wondering, What? So we sit up and these rain pellets were just like digging into our face like needles. So I (laughs) was thinking, this dude is crazy.
0: Don't get to do that every day.
2: (laughs) (laughs) No, you don't get needles in your face every day sitting with Jack (laughs) Nimbus.
0: And I I know you also enjoyed working with Peter O'Toole. That was my favorite year.
2: Yeah, that that wasn't by any choice because (laughs) in my favorite year, I was really hired by Richard Benjamin. Uh, who was directing his first film. And uh, Mel Brooks was the executive producer, and they interviewed me. And, and uh, I, I never met Peter until one day. Well, let me just back up a little bit that there is a scene that is in the middle of my favorite year where uh, Peter O'Toole, as an Earl Flynn kind of character, is dressed in round hose and, you know, the period costume. As as You know, with a sword, he was some kind of knight in this fictional movie inside of My Favorite Year. And um, he is supposed to save the princess in danger from the villain with a sword fight that involved a lot of movements inside this set. And um, I put together and that was filmed actually prior uh, to principal photography uh, on the MGM lot. So I put together that so that Richard Benjamin can see what film he would then project for the actors to react to um, in the the heart of the movie itself. So uh, Richard Benjamin was quite happy with what I had done with it because it was supposed to be a three-minute piece inside this movie. So uh, Richard being really an, an experienced director and then, of course, trusting his relationship with uh, Peter O'Toole, decided to show it to Peter O'Toole at Daly's one day, and Peter O'Toole did not like it. He said he came back. He sat in the front row of the small theater where we were watching Daly's, and after he saw it, and Richard thought he would come back to compliment us instead, uh, O'Toole came back, and he said, Have you no shame? A sword fight is a dance, and you don't show a dance. So we're perplexed, like, what's going on? And then, of course, he didn't want to go on any further. And it put a stop kind of to the filming, or at least the relationship with uh, O'Toole on just future scenes. So uh, the producers huddled with uh, uh, Richard Benjamin and thought, well, you know, next week, O'Toole isn't working. We're filming all these other scenes with the others. So Hey, let's put Peter into the editing room with Richard and he can like, uh, recut it with Richard. And I'm thinking like, wow, you know, even though I was, I'm fairly inexperienced in in working in feature films at that time, uh, because that was pretty early in my career, like who allows an actor to come into the editing room, you know, to, you know, fuss with the, with the picture, but he was Peter O'Toole. Right. So, uh, on the next Monday morning, there he came, and uh, we were supposed to, I had my assistants kind of, you know, make a copy of, a black and white copy at that time. That's what we had to do with film. And so we can preserve what I had originally done, and then we reconstituted the the cut footage into the original daily rows, And then we went into a theater where I could watch the dailies with him. And, of course, you know, Peter being the star, uh, loved that attention. And he had, you know, uh, it wasn't like he was just going to sit there and look at it and come back to the editing room. He had his cousin, who was his assistant that time in Hollywood, uh, Sean, uh, bring him his morning cappuccino and the Irish Times and some croissant. And, and so he was making a day out of it. And uh, I got to then, <laughs> for the next few days, look at the same reels over and over again so he could analyze his dance. And uh, finally after about the second day, and we only had like a half hour of dailies, but after these repeated viewings, he thought he had an idea uh, because he was convinced that since it was a dance, uh, we had to show more of his footwork uh, in wide shots. And uh, Richard Benjamin and I decided we did not want to use wide shots because uh, Peter O'Toole is quite thin. He's quite slender, and he didn't quite fill out his round hose. So they looked kind of baggy on him, so it didn't look like he was really like the the heroic uh, Earl Flynn kind of character. So uh, Richard Benjamin and I decided, let's stick to the medium shots and close-ups and only use the wide shots when we really had to show the geography of it. And that was Richard Benjamin and my plan. But then O'Toole thought he wanted to show all the wide shots so he could show the choreography of the dance that he had worked so hard to do. So uh, once I started to (laughs) do it the way he wanted to, you know, putting together those pieces using the wide shot, he convinced himself or he decided that that's probably not the best part of the scene Not the best way to show his action. So by Thursday of that week, we slowly started to put back the pieces he liked. And by Friday, it turns out that it was, except for maybe three cuts, uh, exactly like I had put together originally that we had shown him. So, But he was happy with it because he thought he had cut it. So we showed it. To Richard Benjamin and of course Richard was happy with whatever Peter was happy with but you know Richard and I looked at each other and winked and said Peter you did a great job
0: well that's something that I do hear uh, quite a lot of editors talk about is just how do you handle a situation when whether it's an actor or the director um, doesn't have the same creative perspective
2: yeah but, you know, in this case, I didn't mind because, I mean, it wasn't like he was just any actor, right? I mean, he was someone, when I was in college, I saw Lawrence of Arabia, and this is like Lawrence. And uh, he's Alan Swan in uh, My Favorite Year. But, I, you know, during all this time, of course, as I'm working and listening to him, I got to hear a lot of stories from him. And, uh, I mean, it was better than being in a bar with him, you know, and he didn't drink by this time anyway, he said. <laughs> uh, so I got to hear a lot of stories from Peter O'Toole, and uh, he was just a terrific guy, you know, just to hang out with. And, uh, and I didn't think of him at that time as being Lawrence. He was uh, an actor trying to um, uh, enhance his performance.
0: And you worked with Tom Hanks on That Thing You Do, which he directed.
2: Yeah, you know, I was just so surprised that um, his producer approached me to work on that picture with him. And uh, once I met him, uh, he was just so welcoming and so warm, such a just like a, you know, a normal guy. By this time, of course, on That Thing You Do, he had won two Oscars uh, for Forrest Gump. And, uh Philadelphia and I even though I work in the business I just assumed that the actor or the person is like his image or his character that I I see in a movie so by the time I met him you know he was just like a normal guy and, and he was just so warm and um he, since it was his first film that he was directing he I don't think, quite realize the power of editing and what you could do in terms of uh, shaping uh, a scene or or shaping the play of an entire film. So uh, once, uh, while we were editing one of the pivotal uh, scenes in the first act of the picture where the band, the Wonders, first hear their song on the radio, and they run down the street in excitement, and then they all converge from various places, but in the appliance store of uh, Guy's father, Guy's the drummer, and his father owns this appliance store. And uh, anyway, uh, all the band comes from different places, and they converge in a great deal of joy and hug each other and so on. But I put together a cut, which, you know, as an editor, I would feel like, well, this is, I think... Uh, my best pass on it. And when I showed it to Tom, well, let me just back up a little bit. Tom every day had a ritual when he came into the editing room. His producer, Gary Getzman, just knew exactly how to set the table for Tom each morning because Gary would come up uh, outside the hallway and he, I mean, in jest, he would say, attention on deck, director here. So then Tom would make his entrance, and it was just comical for us each day that this little ritual would occur that kind of his lieutenant would announce that the captain's coming in or something. And then, of course, uh, then um, Gary would take our Starbucks orders, and he'd make sure that all the assistants and, and everybody the office staff and me and, and Tom and him had our, our Starbucks uh, hit. Anyway, uh, so that day, that was all set up, and he was really excited. To see this, uh, cut of, uh, the band hearing their, uh, song on the radio. And after I showed it to him, he was just kind of really quiet. And I was thinking, like, oh, God, did I really mess this up? And he came over to me and he, he kind of just looked at the keyboard and then he waved his hands over it and he said, may the fairy dust continue to flow. So, uh, you know, you know. I I think he just thought it's kind of magical that because he worked so hard to shoot all these pieces that it can come together, what seems to him, so effortlessly, and flow like that. So I just kind of felt so what, like the Pope, <laughs> the acting Pope had come and blessed me and and gave approval without any notes. You know, because usually directors. Uh, always have notes like, well, that section's a little long, but uh, don't you have a better take for this, blah, blah. But um, in that case, uh, you know, he just thought that there was uh, fairy dust that did the work.
0: What do you find is most misunderstood about an editor?
2: You know, (laughs) because editors are behind the camera and we're more or less kind of anonymous, you know, most of us. I mean, there is like some big time editors that you know Dune was put together by an editor. But, you know, for character pieces, for a lot of what we see, we're misunderstood because our process, the editing process, uh, is so mysterious. In a way, we're alchemists putting together with our secret potion uh, all these moments that by themselves not have the meaning or the impact. That they would have when put together in a certain way, and uh, because we're in a room, you know, now even more than before, when we're in film, we had assistants, we had films on reels, and and you see that there's a lot of material. With digital editing, we've been pushed into the background even more because you don't see anything except a screen and a keyboard. And directors and producers would come and see that, and they they just feel like, hey, I can do that at home. And believe me, you know, I've had producers uh, do that with me. Like, let's just set that up in my system, and uh, I'll have my kid to help me, and we'll, we'll do this. So I think that we're kind of dismissed because we're seen as technicians, whereas, in fact, technical knowledge And technical skills are certainly necessary, but our creative input in the choices that we make, what pieces we choose to use, where we put it, what the length of it is, and then altogether, what is the rhythm of this hour and a half or two hours? That's a process that is not really understood because when it works and you see it, you feel like, that's wonderful. Hey, that's what uh, we shot on the set. I I, recog- I remember that. And I, I, I recall producers remembering that, that I only took up the bad parts and I'm just using the good parts. So I'm um, sorry to see that um, we're not, our work is not respected more. And um, as evidenced by the recent decision by the Motion Picture Academy, um, we really need to stand up for ourselves, and um, we probably need to have, I don't know, uh, more uh, seminars <laughs> to show what we do. And maybe the Academy Museum can show some of the films of the past, uh, how scenes were put together and to honor the work of people like Ann Coates in uh, 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 Lawrence of Arabia, or how the editors of The Godfather you know, put those together.
0: I was actually going to ask you about the telecast. What did you think when you heard about the plans?
2: Well, when I heard this news, I thought, this is um, a replay of uh, a moment we had uh, with the executive committee of uh, film editors uh, branch a few years ago when we had a different president. And at that time, we all thought it was a bad idea And even though the president at that time of the Academy tried to defend it, he himself is a cinematographer. So he realized, you know, what it meant even for him being behind the camera.
0: Right. That was when John Bailey was president.
2: Yeah. Obviously, I thought it was a bad idea then. I think it's a bad idea now. I think that there is obviously a push to shorten the telecast in order to gain more viewers, but unfortunately, I think that it's not just chasing after viewers that are in, is important for the Academy. The Academy is, was formed to honor the arts and crafts, the art and science. You know, uh, movies wouldn't be made without editors. So, so even just to push us in the background or to sound people or the original score, these are the elements that put this together. And I just noticed online uh, the other day, someone posted a quote from Robert Evans, our legendary uh, producer and former studio executive at Paramount, that he talked about the importance and the uh, the vital nature of putting together sound music and picture. And that's what we need to do. And the fact that the Academy now wants to uh, uh, gain more viewers by making it shorter is probably going at it in the wrong direction. Maybe there are other ways to orchestrate the show, but uh, I don't think they're gonna gain more viewers by saying, hey, we cut out uh, presenting awards to these five categories. So I know it's it's a tough position for the Academy to be in, but perhaps if they can stream it, then they would gain maybe more viewers through streaming than they would through broadcast TV. But I think probably because of their contract, with ABC, it restricts uh, the Academy from going beyond broadcast right now.
0: Well, you had the opportunity to accept an Oscar with uh, Marshall Lucas and Paul Hirsch for Star Wars. What do you remember about that night?
2: You know, when you're nominated, you're thrilled, and then leading up to that moment, because you're sitting in the first couple of rows at the it was at the Dorothy Chandler then. You know, we had really, uh, I forget who our competition was that year, but, you know, it's when that is announced, your heart does jump. I mean, other people would say, oh, my heart was in my mouth, but it really does. And there's this rush. Uh, And then, of course, you're trying to gather your thoughts. We had decided beforehand, Marsha, Paul and I had decided that Paul would be uh, make the acceptance speech on behalf of the team. And I was relieved for that because when I walked up there, I knew at least I didn't have to say anything and the load was on Paul. But just standing up there and looking at, I forget what the capacity of the Dorothy Chandler is. It's in the thousands of people, maybe three, four thousand, but it was just big. I, I, you know, um, I remember looking at George Lucas in the front row and holding my Oscar just, waving it at him to thank him for it because it was George's uh, vision, George's uh, perseverance that made it all possible for us. Uh, probably a bigger impact than being on stage was then going backstage into the press room because then that becomes pretty relentless. The questions that um, different members of the media would have And they would be firing these questions at you. And fortunately, there were three of us. So, you know, we could uh, each take turns in answering some of that. But it definitely was a big thrill. And then the party afterwards was even better because at our table was John Williams and his uh, companion for that night was Mia Farrow. So to be able to be at a table and share champagne with John Williams and Mia Farrow, maybe that was more memorable. I don't know.
0: Would you reminisce a little bit about working on Star Wars uh, at the time you were working in San Rafael?
2: Well, uh, you know, when I I, I was approached to uh, do that film before uh, George Lucas had left for England because I just lived down the street from his original house there in San Anselmo. And um, I just had my second child, or my wife just had her second child at that time. So I didn't want to go to England, and if I did... I wanted to not only bring my family, but then a nanny. And then, of course, you know, uh, the budget for Star Wars was quite limited. So <laughs> they weren't looking to support an entourage of Richard Chew to to go to England. So I passed on it. And But when they returned, uh, as it turns out, um, George uh, wanted to re- uh, recut a picture with a different editor. So he had Marsha Lucas start on the the end, the climatic couple of reels at the end, and they invited me to join them to begi- to start at the beginning. So I hadn't seen any f- uh, frame of the picture. And so, he, he, you know, he asked me in and he's just started, started to show me uh, some of the dailies. And of course, I had never seen anything like it. Uh, growing up as a boy, I was a big uh, fan on TV of uh, uh, Flash Gordon and Buck Rogers. Which by the time I saw, they were quite old, and in black and white, and they were, you know, for their time, it was suitable, but you know, uh, it was kind of tacky. And and but when I saw the dailies that George George brought back from England, I was like, when those doors would slide open, and then the stormtroopers would come running toward the camera, or when you see Darth Vader with his costume. I just thought you know this might be a little different (laughs) this might be kind of interesting and then i saw the robots and and r2d2 and at that time of course they didn't have any sound and and um uh three cpo was the actor anthony anthony daniels right so he's speaking through his mask and he's speaking like (laughs) so don't understand what you're saying of course r2d2 They had trouble even in rotating the turret of the top of the, you know, his uh, costume. But there was a guy in the side, right, that was turning it. And then, of course, Darth Vader, as imposing as David Prowse was in his costume at, what, six feet eight. When he spoke, uh, he had kind of a a thinner voice, and also he had a mask on. So when he spoke, it was also like, (laughs) So, you know, how do you cut this stuff? Because, you know, you, you really didn't understand what they were saying. So it was uh, an exercise of cutting it visually. So what we, it would look good in terms of motion, uh, of using the screen, uh, that's what we used. And, of course, since it was on film in an age before digital, uh, we were more limited in uh, how we could treat this material. And, um, of course, it was a thrill to put it together, but the scenes I was assigned to do, like the uh, uh, gun turret sequence when the guys were escaping from uh, Mos Eisley, it was green screen. So we didn't even know what ILM was going to put in there. So we can only cut by the rhythm of what the actors were actually doing in front of the camera, uh, trusting that. ILM, was going to animate and and add all the background elements to make it work. So it was really a different process for me because I had come out of One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest and out of the conversation and then prior to that, documentary. So I had a more difficult time maybe in uh, uh, having faith that uh, all this other stuff would fill in. Did you edit the cantina scene? I had put together the first cantina scene, uh, but you know, George was really unhappy with the costumes on the characters. So he went and reshot it with different costumes. Now, for me, I don't know what he envisioned, and I thought the original cantina scene looked okay. Um, you know, I mean, all those characters are fantastic anyway, and they're uh, fantasy, so you can make them look like whatever you want it to look like. And I don't know if the viewers, you know, would um uh, distinguish that, but he did after uh I left the picture because there was a limited budget, and at Christmas time by the end of was it 2000 um 1976, uh, Martian and I left, and we went on to other projects, and then the Paul Hirsch stayed on, and um, was able to recut that scene with the reshoot that George had with uh, different uh, costumes and makeup.
0: What do you think about this fan debate about who shot first?
2: (laughs) You know, I think uh, the fans of Star Wars can debate this (laughs) forever. Uh, I know that that was a problem you know, when we were editing, um, you know, about whether Han, you know, what kind of guy is he? Is he going to shoot for us or is this in self-defense? And I suppose, I mean, that keeps the franchise going. Uh, Personally, I mean, you know, he's such a Han Solo, such a schwasbuckling guy. I, You know, I accepted the fact that he would shoot first because he's not a guy with scruples anyway, his character. You know, he was a a gunrunner. So to me, I don't know, maybe that's what devoted, uh, Star Wars fans would really care about. But for me, it's still about the ride and, uh, I don't care <laughs> in other words.
0: Well, on uh, Saturday, you're going to be accepting your career achievement award at the Eddie's. Any other reflections or messages for the editing community?
2: Yeah, without giving away my speech, I'm just thinking that we as editors really have a tremendous responsibility to our audiences because of the pivotal role we play in the construction of a a movie. And I think that with this responsibility, you know, comes, especially at this time where the world is in turmoil, we could be much more encouraging to bring out our common humanity and to encourage perhaps uh, more compassion in how we see our our fellow citizens uh, and not create more division. And I know that sounds really Pollyanna-ish, but uh, because movies play such an important role in shaping people's Uh, what, views of other people, whether they're stereotypes, uh, whether, you know, their views are justified or not, I think we we need to maybe do a correction and, 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 and help people become, I don't know, better citizens, better, you know, neighbors, better members of the community to boost each other up rather than to denigrate others. So I guess that's, you know, the main thing I feel about what we could do. But, and, you know, I'm kind of out of the field of play right now, which is, you know, okay by me. But um, I think we, uh, brothers and sisters, we got to be strong and uh, stand up for our working conditions, which uh, I think it's, you know, we're harmed by the callousness of producers uh, not to support us all so that we can still have a family life, a private life in addition to our professional life.
0: Well, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us and uh, congratulations, and I look forward to seeing you on Saturday.
2: Well, thank you for inviting me to uh, talk today to you. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky?
1: Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office.